happened on Friday in addition to the soap, and uh, it was my 15th anniversary of ordination. And uh, <laughs> as Jennifer, our child care uh, director, called it a pastorversary. I, I kind of like that, a pastorversary. So, uh, yes, in July 14, 2002, I was ordained, and that was a Sunday. And so it was also the first sermon that I ever gave was on the ordination And so you can imagine, 15 years ago, being ordained and also prepping for my first sermon, I put a lot of pressure on that first sermon. And I was working hard trying to come up with a home run and uh, working on all of that stuff. I had been in the church about 10 years at that point. And uh, I had come from a place of complete brokenness, just complete uh, bottom, out of gas, just done. I had started out my life as a Catholic, and then uh, for 15 years I've been off and around and trying other things, and then push me to shove, and I really needed to find some kind of meaning and purpose in life. It was about a two-year journey So wanting to be on the inside looking out for once instead of always on the outside looking in. And so I tried hard to drink the Kool-Aid. I tried really hard to believe what they believed. And, and yet I did become a part of the community. And that was lovely. It was wonderful. There was great people there. And, uh, of course, I started playing music within the first year. And um, it just it felt good. But the theology, the doctrine, and the practice was always dogging me. It was always just pounding, and, and I couldn't embrace it. I couldn't break through to that. And I finally got to the point where, even within that church, I was ready to give up on Christianity. I was ready to give up on Jesus. If this is Christianity, I'm not a Christian. If this is Jesus, then I don't think I can follow him anymore, the way that it was presented to me. But I did something different that I hadn't done the rest of my life. I decided to... Instead of just leave, I was going to start coloring outside the lines, so to speak. You know, I started my own study. I was in a formal study within the church at that point. Uh, I was in pastoral training, but I started my own study of Christian origins, and, and then that led me to the Hebrew roots of Christianity, and that led me to original languages. And as I started moving that direction, two things happened. I found two things to be true. The first was I found a Hebrew Jesus who spoke without contradiction, who spoke with complete and full common sense and always pointed fully to the perfect love of the Father. And I'd never met such a Jesus before. One had never been taught to me or presented to me and I wasn't finding him on the street corners of my life. But here I found him in the pages of these books and the other thing that I found is, is that people and relationship are always more important than doctrine, than theology, than any position that we can take. And so what I realized was is that I didn't have to leave the community I loved in order to follow the Jesus that I had found. It was just going to take a little finessing. <laughs> but as things moved on, I, I continued to, to, to study, and I began to actually change as I added a third piece to the study, which was contemplative living. 
reading the mystics, reading people like Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen and Brennan Manning and John of the Cross and Julian of Norwich and these people who were approaching God from a completely non-intellectual place. It was purely experiential. It was deeply passionate. It was connective. It was stepping outside of the normal ways that our minds work to find a deeper presence that I'd never found before. And then I started to realize that Jesus was contemplative too. And this way that he was showing us was a way of this deep connection. He called it being one with the Father. It was unity. It was transformation. It was all these things. And so I'm moving in this direction, which is really antithetical to the conservative Christian church I was in, but I continued my pastoral training and I was finally, I, they gave me a series of exams and oral exams and all these things and I passed them and I was approved and the date was set for the ordination. And so in that run-up to the ordination, of course I was working on this home-run sermon, you know, it had to be a home-run. And at that time it was so hard to find any materials on a Hebrew Jesus, especially on the Aramaic words of Jesus. And so I was constantly scouring, looking for books and looking for materials and resources. And as I was doing an online search, I ran across across a community that called themselves Talmidi, which is an Aramaic word that means follower, but it means it in the sense of of a disciple, an apprentice. Uh, it's, It's a deeper understanding of follower than we normally give it in English. And these were actually Jews who were following Jesus as the original followers of the way would have followed Jesus to the best that they could reconstruct it and understand it, which was fascinating to me. I didn't even know such people existed, you know, 15 years ago. And here I find this group online. And the moderator of the group was named Shmulik. And Shmulik is just the uh, shortened uh, diminutive term for Shmuel, which is uh, Samuel. So he was literally Sammy in Hebrew, but Shmulek uh, was the moderator, and I fired up a conversation with him as I was reading through all of their materials that they had on their website. I fired him an, an email and was asking him questions about this and about that, and he promptly replied, and I wanted to read you um, just a little bit of that first exchange. I didn't even realize I still had these. And I went back to my first message, and this message today is kind of coming full circle. The first message was called The Gospel According to Lou, and that will come clear in a few minutes. But I didn't realize that as I was looking through the notes from that first sermon 15 years ago that these um, conversations were printed out and still in there. And so I'm reading them again as this for the first time, and it was kind of striking to me. But let me just read a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk. Hi, Shmulek. Thanks so much for responding so quickly. And this is dated Thursday, June 6th, 2002. So just, you know, about five weeks before ordination. To give you some background on me, I'm a Christian who has studied Christian origins and theology informally and through my church for the last 10 years or so. And I'm to be ordained next month as a pastor in that same church. At the same time, any serious student sees what your community sees in the early years of the church And I can't escape the conclusion that much of Orthodox Christianity has missed the point, at the very least. What I'm interested in now, and especially as I prepare to teach and work with people as a pastor, is whether our faith, as we understand it, is capable of transforming lives the way Jesus' faith transformed his and those around him. I see so little of that happening in mainstream Christianity. 
I know we are missing the point to a great extent. My questions to you would be, do you see this ability to transform lives in your faith? Do you see your community characterized as living the abundant life, what Jesus called kingdom life that he offered us? And what is it that you do believe about our purpose here in this life, your concept of God and our relationship with him? And since you don't believe in a traditional heaven and hell, how do you understand the concept of everlasting life that Jesus talked about? I've learned that our concepts on these issues greatly influence our behavior and our ability to be content in life. I know I'm asking a lot here, (laughs) you think. (laughs) What's the meaning of life in 25 words or less? And if you don't have time to get into it, I understand. If there are materials you can point to, refer away. Thanks, Shmulek, and God bless you and your community. The next day, he sent me back a really long message. I just want to read you the first line of that. He writes on June 7th, Shalom, my friend. Thank you for your kindness. It is much appreciated. We usually don't get treated very well by Christians at all. We normally just get abuse. That just went right to my heart. And the first line of what I wrote him back in return, Dear Shmulek, first I must tell you how sorry I am that you routinely suffer abuse from my fellow Christians. Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me at all from the attitudes I see and hear in our church. All I can do is apologize for us collectively and offer that these people seem somehow in some unconscious way to be able to disregard the teachings of Jesus in their attempt to follow him. They literally don't know what they're doing, it seems. And I also get the feeling that you and your community understand this already and don't take it too personally, even if it still hurts. And it does hurt. It does hurt. As I move further off into this line of believing, this, this concept of, of Jesus and faith and, and our relationship, I started getting the same kind of abuse hurled at me. Eventually, I had to leave the church that I was ordained at and staffed at um, because I was causing too much of a rift. Even as I tried to stay within the faith statement of that church, it was difficult and it does hurt. I wish I had a nickel for every time I was told I was going to hell and taking everyone with me. You know, it's, it, it's just that was the kind of judgment or, or condemnation that would come down. And I know now where it comes from. I know about the fear that we can have when we have put all of our trust in the, the group, the group understanding, the group concept, the group beliefs. That is our salvation. And so anything that seems to attack it, anything that disagrees with it, is suspect and has to be put down, has to be persuaded or it has to be put down. And I get this. And today I don't take it personally when someone disagrees, and it happens quite often. But it still hurts, especially if it signals the end of a relationship. That's when it really hurts. But this is the understanding of my faith and my my walk with God uh, that I am convinced of, and I can't do anything but convey that and, uh, and so, come what may, the slings and arrows just have to be understood. As I read this, again, like for the first time, I was struck by those questions, the questions I asked. And I realized that they're just as relevant today as they were 15 years ago. And in fact, they're questions that should never be asked just once, but need to be asked over and over and over again. We need to keep asking these questions because they'll keep us honest. These questions will keep showing us and directing us if the faith that we are holding on to right now 
is really taking us where we want to go. Or if it's just become something that we have believed and we're spinning in place. Take a look in your inserts. I put them there because I think it's important for us to get a handle on what these questions are, these central questions. Do you see, do you experience the ability to transform lives in your faith? Does your faith have that ability? Have you experienced that ability of transforming lives? Not just adherence to a creed, but actually something transforming deeply from the inside out. Is your community characterized by living the abundant life, the kingdom life that Jesus offered? Not just going through the motions, but really fully extended, fully abandoned to life. What do you believe about our purpose here in this life? Without meaning and purpose, it's very difficult for any of us to have anything on this list. What is your concept of God, God's nature, and our relationship with Him? That has everything to do with how we're going to approach life, the attitude with which we approach it and experience it. And how do you understand the concept of everlasting life that Jesus talked about? And this is something that these questions, Shmulek answered the first two, the easy ones, and he deferred all the rest. That was okay, you know? What I realized was that these questions weren't so much to be answered anyway. They were to be lived through. They were to be experienced. That's the only way you will get answers that convince you deep enough to start the transformative process. And many of these, he didn't answer, but I have answered for myself, both through study, through, through ministry, and through just living life for another 15 years, getting this old, watching my kids grow up, you know, all of those things have answered many of these questions. This last one, how do you understand the concept of everlasting life that Jesus talked about? That's something that we need to dig back into the Aramaic to really find out because we think of everlasting life as being life in the, in, in the afterlife that's going to continue on for eternity because that's the way it plays to us in English. But in Aramaic, the term there is Haye da Alma. And Alma is the word that is translated as everlasting, but guess what? It's also the word that's translated as world. So in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have Alma, everlasting life. Alma is working for both world and everlasting and that's really jarring to us. How in the world does that happen? Because what Alma really means is era, age, generation. It's about production. Its roots point to ever-changing and never-ending cycles of diversity and newness. To the Hebrew mind, that's what the world looked like. Always changing, winds blowing, seasons changing, crops coming up and down, animals moving through. It was Alma. It was always changing, always new, always diverse, endlessly diverse. And so life that has those same qualities is what Jesus is talking about. We think of everlasting life as being something about time. Jews, Aramaic-speaking Jews, thought of Hayyadah Alma as something about quality. It was a quality of life. It wasn't a time of life. And so everlasting life is life that is always new, always fresh, always surprising. You know? Like when the song that tanked in rehearsal comes out in performance, it's Alma. It's new. It's surprising. This is life. Basically, everlasting life is the same as the abundant life that Jesus is talking about. The two are equivalent this is what Jesus is trying to get us. The Jews were all about here and now, not about there and then. 
And so that helped me to start putting these things together and start to understand how this actually works. So in the midst of all this activity of trying to get my my sermon together and all this mental work that I was doing, there was Lou, who was another friend of mine. I didn't know that Shmulek was going to become a friend as I started this conversation with him, but we've been friends now for 15 years. He actually came from England twice and stayed here for a month or two, once at our house, once at another person's house, and we continue to correspond to this day. That was the beginning of a friendship. My friendship with Lou was ending, and I didn't realize it at the time. I don't know if I can get across to you Lou's quality as a man, but I hope I can. He was an older man. He was probably in his mid-late 70s. He had diabetes for years, and he was at the point where he was confined to a wheelchair. He was on dialysis two to three times a week. And yet every time on Sunday morning, that wheelchair would come up the aisle, and there would be Lou's face. And his smile would literally split his face into two halves. It was ear to ear. And he had this gap between his front teeth. And it was the goofiest smile you ever saw. But it was so real. And he would shout across from, Dave, how are you doing? And as I looked down at him, and, and we would connect eye contact, it was as if the whole rest of the room just kind of faded out and there was just him and me. He had this ability, this quality to make you feel like you were the only person in the world at the time that he had your attention, at the time he had your eye contact. And he just drew you in. There was something about him that was just effervescent. And here he was in a wheelchair. Here he was near the end of his life. And every Sunday... It was the same. And I I was so intrigued by him, I started having longer conversations with him. And as he had to move out of his house into a convalescent home, I would visit him at the convalescent home and we'd have conversations at his bedside and just talk about things. He was a big Trojan fan, which was kind of, you know, outside of my kin, but what the heck. You know, he'd talk about football and the Trojans, anything. And he was always laughing, always kidding around, goofing around, making jokes. He was just, the, just the, the class clown, the life of the party. At this point, though, in June and, and probably May and June of 2002, he had gotten to the point where he was just tired. He was tired of the dialysis. He was tired of having to do everything, and he just said no more. He wasn't going to do any more dialysis. And so then the clock was ticking. It was just a matter of time. And so he had moved from the uh, convalescent home to an actual hospital, and Marion and I went to visit him, and uh, he was there in bed, and there were now big, dark patches on his arms and, and legs where the gown didn't cover of, of blood that was coming up to the surface, and, and you could tell that he was, he was worn, and, uh, and he had taken a toll. This whole thing had taken a toll on him. But as soon as he saw us, there was that smile, that face-splitting grin, and just... And he just drew us in again. And we sat there and talked, you know, for quite a while. And when it was obvious that he was tiring and needed to rest, you know, we were saying our goodbyes and getting up to go. And he stopped us and and grabbed us by the hands. Both of us had our hands in his hands. And, And he was just looking at us with this intense eye contact. And he just said, love each other. Just love each other. And then he waited for a beat. And he said, And kid around a little bit. (laughs) And I didn't know that would be the last words that I'd ever hear from my friend Lou, but he died three days later. Love each other. Just 
love each other, and kid around a little bit. Twelve words. I didn't even realize the significance of those twelve words as he was saying them to him, but in the days that followed, more and more, those things, those twelve words were just ringing in my head, and I was starting to realize the significance of them. In my book, The Fifth Way, the first chapter is the Gospel according to Lou, and I want to just read you a little bit to see if I can get this across in a more concise way. Lou died exactly two weeks before my ordination as a pastor. Thoughts and time had been filled with preparation for the event and especially for the message I was to give, and by the time we had stepped around the curtains of Lou's bed, I had an outline in mind, and I thought I knew what I wanted to say that Sunday. But in the days that followed our visit and his death, the bigness of that moment with Lou became clearer and clearer until I realized that Lou had already said it all. Everything I was trying to say in just 12 words. It was a gospel according to Lou. Complete, intact, beautiful in its brevity. I couldn't say it any better and any more said would only be commentary. 12 words. Chapter 1, verse 1. Love each other, just love each other. Chapter 1, verse 2. And kid around a little. That moment with Lou helped make sense of many other moments. To begin to understand something I'd been suspecting for some time through the years of study and preparation, but hadn't quite been able to formulate mentally or verbally, and certainly not in 12 words. Lou was the same person living or dying. All his parts, physical, emotional, spiritual, worked seamlessly together to produce that smile. I don't know how long it took him to get to the smile point, I didn't know him as a young man or even a middle-aged man, but for as long as I knew him, he made a complete statement with his life. I'm not saying that Lou never had a bad moment, a black day or a brown day. Of course he did. But he had gotten to a point in life where any given moment, he could provide whatever was most needed by any person in his path. In a body ravaged by diabetes, managed with dialysis, Lou had become content more often than not. Lou loved us, and he loved to kid around with us. His love was the way he had decided to live his life, but his kidding around was the way we knew we were loved. His playfulness made his love real, not the love itself, because love is never transferred directly. The effect love has on our choices is all that can ever be felt by another. We often say that love is a decision, and so it is, in part. Love may have been Lou's decision, but his kidding around was the proof that he actually liked the decision he had made. That his decision had transformed him from someone who practiced love to someone who had fallen deeply in love. See, I knew all about the love part. That was drilled into me from when I was a, a small child. And everyone at church talked about love, talked about grace, talked about God as love and all those things. But in the same breath, they would also talk about God's wrath. They would talk about damnation. They would talk about punishment and condemnation of other people if they didn't believe what the main line believed. I saw much heaviness in people. I saw this stoic determination to finish the race well, the struggling through, the doubt about whether any of us were acceptable before God. I saw that. But where was the transformation? Where was this move into abundant life? 
If you look at John 10.10, it's in your bulletins or up on the screen. Jesus tells us, I came that they may have life, and they is us. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. There it is again. Haye da alma. Abundant life, eternal life, life that is always new and fresh and fulfilling, full of meaning and purpose. Where was that? Where was that life? All the work that I was doing, all the work the church was doing, where was the change? Where was the joy? Where was the contentment? Look at 1 John 4 at verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Why are we still characterized by fear and not by love? Where is the transformation? See, I was stuck. I was trying to figure it all out. I was trying in my head to figure out something that is not intellectual, to figure out something that is purely experience. And Lou broke right through to the essence with just 12 words. He just cut right through all of that and kid around a little. How obvious is that? How necessary is that? And how elusive is that? How easy for us to miss? Because we can pursue love with a vengeance, you know? We do that, don't we? We define it as good behavior. We find it as rightness with God. We define it by all the the types of relationships that we want to have. And then we just go for it. We determine that we're going to make this happen and we're going to do it if it kills us. And we can say that we're doing the loving thing. We can say we're doing it for another person's own good. As we criticize, as we correct, as we condemn, as we discipline, as we ostracize, all in the name of love because it seems right to us. Or on a more positive side, we can nurture, we can care for, we can instruct, we can train, we can even encourage people. But we can do all of these things without the transformation that Jesus is talking about. We can do all these things without the abundance. I have watched people throughout my entire life and ministry. I've watched myself take on love as this weight that I have to carry, this thing that I need to do in order to be good enough for God's embrace. And from the outside looking in, I was probably doing a great job, as many people will be. But inside, what's happening? Inside, where is the joy? Where is the transformation? See, Lou understood all this. He got this. And he's kidding around comes from an entirely different place, an entirely different space, an entirely different attitude. For us to laugh, to playfully engage with another person, to enjoy another person, to delight in their presence, to take pleasure in just the company that we have, you don't pursue that. You just fall into it. I thought that I had to go and grab something by the throat, grab it and make it happen. It was a pushing off. It was a letting go. Lou was always laughing. He was always making jokes. He was always clowning around. 
And in doing that, he showed me a laughing Jesus. See that picture down on your insert? It's the one out in the hallway here. It's our laughing Jesus. I can't tell you how many people have come in here, especially on a Tuesday night through the recovery program, and they see that picture, or they see the one in the back here of the smiling Jesus, and it just transfixes them. Because I never thought of Jesus as laughing before. I never thought of him as smiling. Well, it never says that he laughed in the scriptures. It never says that he smiled. You know, only says that he wept. <laughs> thing about scriptures are, they don't tell the people that they were writing to what they already knew. You know? If it was a sunny day in a desert, they wouldn't mention it. If it rained in the desert, yeah, that would get all the headlines. You know, the things that were already commonly known by the people were not brought up in scripture. It was very concise. It was very brief. The fact that Jesus is not depicted as laughing or smiling is because he was doing it all the time. When he wept, that was news. We'll put that in there. But not when he was laughing and not when he was smiling. When I was with Lou, I saw a different Jesus who was completely in line with this Jesus that I was studying on the pages. But here it was, right in front of me. And I started to realize that Jesus was always laughing, always kidding around, draping an arm over the shoulders of the person next to him. He was the first guy in the pool you know, running ahead and yelling over his shoulder and egging everybody on. This was the kind of Jesus. When he played with the child, he was rolling around on the ground and they were pulling his beard and he was giving horseback rides. And he was doing everything that was undignified for a leader, for a master, for a rabbi to be doing. And he incurred the wrath and the displeasure of people who condemned him for that. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he partied. Because he got with people and he laughed and he drank and he ate. Why aren't you fasting like your cousin John is fasting? He says, hey, the bridegroom is here. It's time to party. Don't you know? No wonder the people followed him. No wonder the people saw that he lived with authority. That all his parts were one. Living, dying, everything. Jesus was one thing. And Lou was showing me who that is. And I learned the lesson well because I started to transform myself and started to realize there's a whole different way of approaching faith if we're going to transform. This laughing Jesus showed me the quality of the abundant life, showed me the quality of the everlasting life. Does our faith allow us to kid around or is it too formal for that? Is that unseemly? Is that blasphemous? To play the kind of music that we play in here for some would be blasphemous. For us to allow smoking on premises would be blasphemous. Some of the things that we do, does our faith allow us to just lighten up? To start to enjoy our moments, enjoy each other. To place people above doctrine, above theology, and to realize that a relationship is the most important thing in life and theology, and doctrine, and practice, and ritual, and all of these things that we do in religion are designed to foster relationship and not the other way around. That's what it's there for. If we can take delight and take pleasure in whoever is in front of us, 
if we can dispel the fear that keeps us so serious, then certain things can happen in our lives. Then our faith will have the power to transform us, to heal us in such a way that we can start enjoying life again. Some of us are so broken. Some of us are so heavy. To have that weight lifted, to experience the healing of, of, of spirit flowing through us again. Our communities will become characterized by that playfulness, by this abundant life. We'll see our purpose in life the same as God's will. God's will, sebiana, means the desire, the delight, the deepest purpose of God, the things that he takes pleasure in. We'll take pleasure in those same things and it will show in our lives, in our choices, in our relationships, in everything that we do. And it will be proven in our playfulness. And we'll know that our God's nature as love itself is absolutely true. We will absolutely know our nature, this, our nature and our nature in God because we'll start to know Him. We'll start to understand finally that our God is a playful God. Remember that song a few years ago? Our God is an awesome God. It should be our God is a playful God. He reigns. Our God is a playful God. He's a kidding around God. Take a look at that little quote by Thomas Keating. You should not take prayer too seriously. There is something playful about God. You only have to look at a penguin to realize that he likes to play little jokes on creatures. <laughs> this is Thomas Keating. He's a Trappist monk, a cloistered monk, you know, with the hood and the thing and the this and the that, and he's in his 70s, you know. But he writes something like that. See? He's the last guy that you think would be bending and moving and shaking and laughing. But that's what it looks like when we transform from the inside out. Our God is a playful God. And if you can't see that, if you can't get to the point in life where you can honor that, value that, love that, God is a playful God. If that doesn't cease to offend you in some way, then you're not going to be able to see those central questions that we're asking here in life. They're going to be really hard for you to answer. I wanted to read just a little bit more from the Gospel according to Lou and see if this brings a point home. Lou was transformed, and that made all the difference. The writings we hold sacred in Judeo-Christian scripture give us image after image of the centrality of transformation. From being born again to drinking living water to becoming like little children, they all point in the same direction, radical change. All we may do in the name of God, however well-meaning, is meaningless without true transformation that changes us from the inside out and makes the experience of our lives radically different. Without transformation, love remains a decision and lots of hard work. Be ye transformed and love becomes play. Thoreau wrote that most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. What is it about the gospel, the good news, that isn't good enough anymore to actually transform our lives from being characterized by fear to being characterized by contentment? And from there, to being able to play at love. 
What did Lou know that we don't? Was there some wonderful joke that God told him that kept him smiling and laughing every time he recalled the punchline? I think so. I think God kept Lou laughing because Lou had finally seen God as God is. Lou couldn't tell us the joke. You had to be there. But we could see it written on his face and in his life and in his gospel. The good news is only as good as we actually believe it is. And we'll only know whether we really believe the news is good when we become characterized by contentment ourselves, when we have really fallen in love with each other and God. Our lives will bear the marks of the death of our desperation, and we really will be like people raised from the grave of our fears. Lou understood this, maybe not technically or theologically, but deeply and personally, and in a way he could articulate so beautifully. Love each other. Just love each other. But trying our best to love each other remains all work and no play for too many of us. And kid around a little. Without the kidding around, without the sense of fun and play and celebration, how is it that we're really in love? The two are inseparable, each one defining and proving the existence of the other. If we're really in love, then we're also at play. And if we're really at play in that moment, we're also in love. Lou knew this too. And in that moment we had with him, that big moment, he tried to squeeze into our hands and eyes and ears what took him a lifetime to comprehend. There's only so much anyone can really tell you. But I can tell you that in that big moment, my life made sense. And in the moments that have followed, I have found more and more truth in Lou's gospel. I can't do any better than Lou did, and I'm not going to try. But what does it take to get to the point in life where you can state the gospel with authority, straight from your heart, in only 12 words? What does it take? Isn't that the question? It takes your whole life. It takes your entire life experience. This is our purpose. This is our meaning, to learn to love letting go. To learn to love playing at love. Beyond the work of love, finding the play. Fifteen years ago, two friends came to my rescue. One that was entering my life and one that was exiting. Shmulek gave me a clearer picture of this ancient Eastern Hebrew Jesus. But Lou brought him to life right before my eyes. This is what I'm convinced of. It's all that I can tell you. Now you go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And if you find yourself kidding around while you're doing it, (laughs) then Jesus and Lou are laughing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Just thank you. Even thank you for the gratitude that we feel when we get into a space where we're starting to realize all that we've been given. Help us to take some joy in what we call our faith. Help us to take pleasure in just the moments together and the tiniest, most insignificant things that we experience. Help us to realize that this is what life is all about. This 
is what gives meaning to life. And this is why we're here. Not for any of the things that we imagine, the spectacular things, the things that we work so hard on. But as we're working hard, as we're moving toward our agendas and our goals, that each moment is just fun, is just connected, and gives us that sense that everything is going to be okay, regardless of outcome. That's the life that we want to live. That's the abundant life that we want to realize. So, Father, help us to continue to lay down our fears and distractions and anything that would stand in the way of just finding you, who you really are, and who we are in you. Thank you for loving us and never letting us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, let's stand.